Ransomware has become big business for hackers. We take a closer look at the driving forces behind it. That's next on the Cyber24 podcast presented by Valcom. All right, welcome back into another episode of the Cyber24 podcast presented by Valcom. I'm Marty Carpenter, your host, and uh, joined today by Matt Sorensen, the founder of Formidify. Matt, thanks for being back with us. Thanks, Marty. Uh, Okay, ransomware. We talk about it almost ad nauseum on this podcast because it was sort of the big thing in 2019, and it was uh, hitting more and more businesses or at least becoming more and more uh, uh, noticed as far as uh, the type of attack that was out there. And we've talked through a number of the reasons why. Uh, Almost no one ever seems to get caught. (laughs) Uh, They always seem to get – they often seem to get money. And uh, so it's sort of become like the perfect crime for a criminal, and businesses – uh, aren't doing enough to protect themselves from it. Those are some of the reasons why it's been big. And let me just maybe touch on this first about uh, how big. So in the first nine months of 2019, first three quarters of 2019, there were nearly 152 million ransomware attacks reported. And who knows about how many that may have you know gone undetected, gone not reported, or someone just kind of didn't didn't add it to that list. Uh, they're getting more sophisticated. They're becoming trouble for business. So let's talk about some of the elements that are that are running through them. First of all, I guess before we jump in, any any just sort of general comment on the uh, proliferation of ransomware attacks and, and what that means for business? You know, that's a, it's an arms race between good guys and bad guys. Mm-hmm. And as the bad guys create a new way to make money, we can over time defend against it and get better. Mm -hmm. And we have help from a very well-funded investment, um, you know, venture capital, Silicon Valley type security tool industry, always coming up with new and better defenses and which will result in a shift in tactics. So the bad guys will then turn and do something a little differently. And it gets very technical. It gets very, um, computer sciencey, you know, how to, how to really break in the, it gets confusing for the average Joe. Oh, for for sure. For a CEO without a technical background, it gets really daunting. Even for the security professionals, your average security professional, I think maybe the, the lay person wouldn't appreciate this, but in information security, there are probably 15 plus sub specialties. Yeah. It's like medicine. You have all these different subspecialties and one specialty may not know much about the other. But in malware and the way malware works and how to defend against it, it, it's a very specialized discipline. Yeah. And you and I both have some experience in helping businesses recover from this. And you have uh, sort of a different, more technical experience and a legal perspective. Uh, Mine has been on the uh, sort of crisis communication element of it. But this really... I don't think businesses who have the businesses that have not gone through a ransomware incident can fully appreciate just how much time it takes to recover, how much cost is associated with recovering, uh, what it can do to your reputation as a business that handles data for your customers or your clients. Um, I just do you, it's it's terribly undersold. Like, I don't think people really appreciate just how much of an impact these things really have. It's not as simple as we're locked out, we paid, and it unlocked. Yeah, the the disruption alone costs. uh, I I have a client that was losing over $100,000 a day during the incident because the systems were offline. Mm -hmm. And they were not an e-commerce company. 
They're not like Amazon who can't sell things. Uh, so very impactful, very devastating. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the sort of driving forces or these, these things that it's not just sort of like, well, they can make money doing it, but what are sort of the, the larger elements that are, that are pushing this? And there was an article that, that we'll post on our website uh, along with this podcast Good. that kind of walked through three elements of this. So I, I just wanted to kind of touch on these and maybe get your thoughts on each. So the first element they list is the socioeconomic conditions for STEM-educated citizens of Eastern European countries. Yeah. So uh, you got a bunch of guys who understand how to hack in a place where their really only opportunity is to hack. And yeah. that ends up being so the problem. It, it goes back to the fall of the Soviet Union, 1991, and the satellite states that were a part of the Soviet Union shifting their economies from planned central economies mm -hmm. to a more capitalism-based, uh, skilled workforce-type mm -hmm. uh, economy. Yeah. And so they promoted heavily education and getting folks into STEM disciplines and computer science and yeah. programming yeah. is one of the results of that um, 1990s phenomenon and yeah. that probably continues to today. So there are very well-educated, highly skilled technical people in these countries, former Soviet Union blocs yeah. countries. Yeah. So they have the skills. The yeah. skills. And because they have the skills and, you know, like any – talk about capitalism being introduced into these countries. They got a skill set. The only way they can see or the best way they can see to make money and make the most money in the shortest amount of time. That's the second issue yeah. is there aren't enough jobs locally within country to live the, you know, the middle class lifestyle yeah. that they are seeking. Yeah. And so what do you do with the skills that can make money, a good contribution if put yeah. to good use? Uh, yeah a negative impact if put to, to, cr to crime, but, yeah. but what if do you they do? If they live somewhere where it's not like there's a firm hiring for the skill set that they have or it's difficult for them to uh, you know, work remotely or for whatever reason connect with companies that may want that kind of skill set, yeah, I mean, if that's what you can do, that's what you're, you're going to do. So that makes a lot of sense to me that that would be a driving force. There's also a self-fulfilling prophecy here where as these countries and their skilled workers – have turned to crime, we lump all skilled workers from those countries into the same bucket. Mm -hmm. And we're more hesitant yeah. to hire them as contractors. For example, if I had the choice to pick a contractor to develop code for me between India and Belarus. You're probably going to go with India. Well, there's a stigma. Yeah. How do I vet either of them? And it's yeah. tough, right? Yeah, it's very tough. But And so they're sort of a victim of their own stereotype and that doesn't necessarily yeah. help anyone but for, you can also understand on the other side you're thinking better safe than sorry if my impression of this particular talent pool is such then I may not be as likely to want to take the risk and and find out the hard way yeah especially in a situation where it's tough to vet somebody yeah tough to really kind of like an interview is one thing but now it's just sort of a barrier there are some emerging marketplaces that help us with that uh, gig economy websites mm -hmm. where you can evaluate a potential contractor, mm -hmm. see examples of past work, and read recommendations from prior em employers. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, can they be faked? Of course. How much due diligence should you do? But at least there's a uh, platform now to do some of that due diligence. Yeah, yeah. Really, uh, 
you can see why it's a driving force. You can see why someone left in that predicament would be inclined to sort of go to this um, this type of activity to to earn some money. Yeah. Um, the second element they bring up, and I think this one's interesting as well, uh, mainstream development of cryptocurrency as a, an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's like anything else. You got a business, right? You, if, if you're a hacker and you're doing, uh, you're, you're using ransomware as, as a source of income for you, um, you may have the skills, but the fact that the tools suddenly become so much more readily available or easier to use, you don't have to start from scratch to go do something and make it effective, has to make it much more likely that that is a, is a path to follow for those who want yep. to do that. So the raw investment to get into this business is very low. If you have the skills, the marketplace of malware and tools is vast and varied and not that expensive. Mm-hmm. And, and so one thing that's always really intrigued me is the, the kinds of malware that are out there, they are all, many of them are related. There's like a family tree of malware variations because some smart person will get a piece of malware and they'll tweak it. And it's a lot easier to buy a house already built and remodel a room than to build the house in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. So there are really devious minds out there that have created the parent malware tool in the beginning. Yeah. And, and, but hundreds and hundreds of people will refine it and perfect it and make it better and more devious along the way. But you go back to the root of the tree, that, those are the really scary people to me, the ones that actually create a new way to compromise. Yeah. They're, they're scary, but there's sort of the ability, for lack of a better term, to scale the evil of it, yes. right? Yeah. Like there's, they may be coming up with the new concepts. They may have been the ones who developed the initial concept, but they've made it easy for people who are far less skilled, far less likely to be dedicated yes. enough to go put something like that together to just get it off, off the shelf, so to speak. And it's no different than why can I remodel my room on my own as a lay person? Because mm-hmm. I can go to Home Depot and buy the tools. Yeah. That I need. Yeah. Without Home Depot, I wouldn't have a chance. Yeah. There are three factors I'd like to unpack on this uh, skilled developer. There are economics in play here as well. What incentivizes someone with that level of intelligence and skill to create something so malicious in the first place as an original work, not just taking someone else's and making it better? Yeah. One, there's industrialized hacking at the nation state level. And so people who work for their governments in these roles acquire those skills. Mm -hmm. And then when they're out of military service, what are they going to do? So there's one factor. It happens here too, not not in the cybersecurity part. A lot of people go work for the government. Absolutely. Get some experience and a skill and then go profit off of it in the uh, private sector. Many of our best security companies in the United States were founded by former military contractors and and service men and women. Mm -hmm. So not a bad thing. It's just that's – the economics of it. Which is how it is. Right? Yep. Second thing is organized crime and the ability to fund or pay someone to create these things mm-hmm. versus – so I think those are drivers on malware creation, the industry. The third thing though is moving money. Law enforcement internationally has gotten very good at finding and stopping illicit flow of money because hacking for profit – doesn't work if you can't get money. And in the older days, you would you would hack to get data that you would resell. So it's a commodity. Mm-hmm. You know, I could buy potatoes in Russia, export them to another country, and then trans 
transfer the money into another product. Eventually it comes back to me through my international trade. The rise of cryptocurrencies have made it impossible for law enforcement to apply traditional methods to stop money laundering and mm-hmm. money movement across borders. Yeah. And so it's created a new way to make money easy. And I think that's a huge factor in why ransomware works. Aren't you glad there isn't training for the fish to teach them how to avoid your hook and bait? Informational phishing is big business for hackers, and they love that your end users don't know how to identify it. Attacks have shown record growth in recent years, and a solid security awareness program is an integral part of any defense in-depth strategy. Lucky for you, Sophos has created a phishing attack simulation and training for your end users. Sophos Fish Threat educates and tests your end users through automated attack simulations, quality security awareness training, and actionable reporting metrics. So train your users how to avoid a hacker's hook and bait. Go to vlcmtech.com slash fish. That's vlcmtech.com slash p-h-i-s-h. Allowing your employees to bring in their own devices is like allowing them to bring in a security time bomb to your workplace. So how do you take the burden of onboarding so many new devices off your IT department without sacrificing security or policy enforcement. Look no further than Aruba ClearPass. ClearPass allows you to safely connect business and personal devices to your network in compliance with your security policies. It allows you to allocate access to devices based on users' roles, device type, and cybersecurity posture. At Valcom, they're all about saving you time while still protecting your privacy. Dismantle your time bombs at vlcmtech.com slash clearpass. That's vlcmtech.com slash clearpass. This season of Cyber 24 is presented by our friends at Valcom. Valcom is a Utah-based IT solutions and service provider with the drive for getting IT right. From ironclad security to computing and beyond, Valcom's 35 plus years means they have experience and expertise to help your business from desktop to the data center. At Valcom, you get much more than just a dedicated IT retailer. They actually become an extension of your IT team. Whether you're a startup or an enterprise, Valcom has the technical sales and engineering expertise to make your business more effective and productive. Check them out, vlcmtech.com, to learn more about Valcom's end-to-end solutions, the technology vendors they partner with, and so much more. That's vlcmtech.com. This is a matter of like the cryptocurrency, essentially, that there's, it's easier to move things if you have a blockchain that you can do that on. It's anonymous. And you not you do not need anyone to help you except the 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 crypto tool. Yeah. Right. And those marketplaces are designed for anonymity and ease of use. Yeah. Because there's a good there's some good things about them. Yeah. So all of a sudden you have tools and you have a way to to have motive. Yeah. Skills um, and methods. And now we have the financial transfer apparatus. Mm-hmm. And like I said early early on, it can be difficult to keep up with the good guys when they're constantly blocking you at every turn. When you stole someone's credit cards out of their server 
or a file full of credit cards. You had to still monetize that, mm-hmm. right? With crypto malware, you just scare the company into paying. So the monetization of the crime is so much easier mm-hmm. with ransomware than it's ever been. Yeah, You don't have to figure out a way to turn data into money like yeah. you used to. So if we have sort of these these three elements that there is a group of people that has the skill set and you know the motivation for whatever socioeconomic reasons to to turn to this as a as a and I would add to that the ethical yeah component sure is it right or wrong to do this and let's face it not all nations have the same history of a Judeo-Christian 200-year-old founding, which was by and large, what, a reformist, puritanical kind of Mm -hmm. movement associated with the founding of America. I think we're fortunate in the United States to still retain much of that in our Mm -hmm. culture and in our fabric, but not all countries are so endowed with that kind of right and wrong sense. And I, I, I guess I should tread a little carefully here, but... You know, look at China with the intellectual property theft. Yeah, the the economics and the morality is a different set of factors. Yeah, yeah, and good not to just assume that the way we think as Americans is the way that everyone else. They, everyone doesn't start with the same uh, f- the same moral compass. Not to say one better than the other, though. You know, certainly I have my thoughts on that. But and at the end of the day, it's different. And people want to eat. They want to have a car. They want to have a good life. Yeah. And and so if their doors are closed to them, but these others, mm-hmm. it, there's a justification there, I'm sure, that says, hey, this is the way to provide for my family. Yeah. So you've got the element of you know, socioeconomic. So they, they need the money. They may not look at the right and wrong as being the same way, or they may just be in enough of a desperate position or whatever. The elements are there, or from a socioeconomic standpoint, you have people who have these skills and are not afraid to use them, I right. guess, is a good way to put it. They also have, as you mentioned, the, uh, the econo- the, the, they don't have the barrier of how do they get the money when they do it, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a matter of no one has to leave a briefcase full of cash in the park yeah. and let someone pick it up. They can uh, slap you with ransomware and then make it simple and anonymous for you to transfer yeah. the money to them. And then, you know, the, the availability of, of the tools. Yep. So. If all those, and I think all those make a lot of sense as far as that's that's some those are some maybe not so evident driving forces um, for you know a company that gets hit may not stop and think oh well this is because of socioeconomic conditions in former Eastern European yeah. countries ah, and of course you know now with the cryptocurrency they can easily transfer my money anonymously and so on um, how do we get is there a there's no simple way I would guess no, to I attack mean, all these these are like big levers to pull oh. you can't change the socioeconomic standing of Eastern European countries all that easily I think it would be as difficult as the US involvement in Afghanistan in mm-hmm. trying to bring democracy and elevate the standard of living yeah I think there are factors on the ground in in a country like Afghanistan that that one are hard to understand two that are obstacles to nation building in the form of our version of nation mm-hmm. making. But how do you change something so vast and complex yeah. that goes back in time so yeah. far? I, I think that 
the political environment in these countries is also different than what we are accustomed to in the United States. Why doesn't law enforcement have a better opportunity to work with law enforcement in these countries to find and, and, and arrest these criminals? If, if, if you look at – if I don't know, but what is the net dollar transfer from the U.S. to these countries per year? Yeah. How much money in Bitcoin is flowing across the ocean to these actors? And what impact does that have on the GDP of these countries? Mm-hmm. And when you have a populace that's in part boosted and supported in income through these activities, yeah. and you go and upset the apple cart – what are you going to get in return as a political leader? Yeah. You might have more yeah. unrest and more All problems of your same. own. Yeah. So I guess the the moral of the story or the, the, the best way to wrap it up and put a bow on it is there are large forces that are driving uh, cyber criminals to, to take this route. And since you can't change that as just an individual business or even a coalition of businesses – uh, since there's such large levers to pull in order to make a change there, it just reemphasizes the importance of having the right defenses in place, right? I mean, there's you can't fix, you can't stop the the faucet from running, so you better figure out how to contain the water from flooding your whole house. You get it right down to the razor's edge. It's a link and a click. Hmm. How do we stop that click? Yeah. Billions of dollars right now in in our economy are devoted to identifying the bad links, preventing the person from clicking, and it's just such a simple thing. Yeah, a single click. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and, I, and I still wonder if generationally, you know, you get forty, fifty years down the road, people are going to be so much more naturally responsible that they will be able to detect though. Along those same lines, the bad guys will continue to evolve as well. One thing I can promise is, one, the future will look like something that we have a hard time envisioning. Two, we'll look back at these days of fishing Mm -hmm. and just think, how did we survive? Mm -hmm. How primitive. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting points uh, brought up in this uh, this article. We'll post it on our website. Uh, Thanks for your insight on it as well. Uh, Matt Sorensen is our guest today from Formidify. Matt, thanks so much for your insight. Thank you. Cyber 24 is supported by the Utah Department of Public Safety, as well as the Utah Department of Technology Services and the Utah Attorney General's Office. In addition, the University of Utah's Chem C. Gardner Policy Institute is where we record this podcast each week. At the Chem C. Gardner Policy Institute, they're dedicated to helping Utah make informed decisions. We're also proud to have the support of Secuvant, a Utah-based company providing business-enabled cyber risk and management. Every week on this program, these great partners will provide expertise and insight to help business and civic leaders better understand the challenge of cybersecurity and how to keep your organization safe. We appreciate your support.